0: From Podimo, this is Cold Blood, Nordic True Crime. The Gamma Bomber Part 2 In the first episode of the Gamma Bomber, we heard about a mysterious series of pipe bombings in the Copenhagen area in the late 1970s. The identity of the bomber was a mystery. Telephone booths were his first targets. Miraculously, no one died. Usually, the perpetrator would leave a letter to be found near the bomb scene, but the police couldn't ascertain any clues from these letters. Suddenly, the bomber changed tactics and stopped targeting phone booths. The next bomb was found at a sandpit near a school, putting innocent young children in danger. How long would these incidents go on for before someone would be killed? It's almost Christmas and the authorities are trying to take all possible precautions. They fear that a department store could be targeted with an explosion during the holidays. Everyone is hoping for calm and an end to the bomb attacks. But it seems the bomber intends to destroy the holiday spirit of the Danish people. It's 3.45pm on the 20th of December 1977, just before Christmas. The bus is driving along the street, Friedrichsundsfei, with about 15 to 20 passengers on board. Somewhere in the middle of the bus sits an elderly woman in her double seat. She's alone, her seat facing the aisle, and doesn't notice the plastic bag on the floor under the seat next to her. The elderly woman accidentally hits the bag with her foot, and there's a huge bang. Panicking, the other passengers rush off the bus. The old lady is panicking too, crying out, My leg! My leg! Acting quickly, the bus driver administers first aid. Then he calls the police and an ambulance. While the old lady sustains many injuries, some of which are serious, the rest of the passengers are lucky to escape with only minor injuries. A few of them tell the police they first thought that a cannon had been fired. When they heard it was a bomb, they're shocked. The elderly woman is immediately taken to the emergency room, where she receives medical attention. She is then taken to a clinic that specializes in ear disorders and receives treatment there. The bus is transported to the police station in Tomskartsvay, where it's examined by specialist police officers. They find several parts belonging to the explosive charge. With this evidence, they quickly determine that the bomb resembles those from the previous attacks. But this time, the forensic technicians don't find any letters from the bomber. Society is shaken by these continuing bomb attacks. Everyone wonders how long it will be before someone dies. Danish newspapers run headlines like Christmas peace has been shattered. The press go out to interview people asking if these events have had an impact on ordinary people's lives. They reveal that Danes have been left scared and upset by the attacks. Kirsten Jensen, a woman interviewed by Blooded says I urge my girls to be cautious and look around carefully no matter where they are. I hope the bomber will be caught soon. Kai Nielsen, a sausage seller, explains people here are always on high alert now and everyone's keeping their wits about them. I hope the police catch him soon. Jensen Dahl, unemployed, is also worried. Of course we're afraid of being outside, he says. I told my children they have to look around carefully and they can't go to the basement alone. That bomber is a sick man. The police are under a lot of pressure. The press continue to write about the case, and Danish people want the culprit caught. A few newspaper editors throw accusations at the police, claiming that the police should be better organized and put an end to the attacks. They criticize the apparent divisions between the Copenhagen police and the police units of smaller municipalities. The police don't react to the criticism, but they address Copenhagen residents by writing an appeal that is printed in all national newspapers and magazines. They appeal to the residents of the capital for help. Even the smallest detail or suspicion will be of interest to the police. People shouldn't hesitate to share any information that they might have. The police also emphasize that no risks should be taken. For example, if the door in a childcare facility is even slightly stuck, Someone should call the police. Buses, waste bins, police stations, and kindergarten areas are under special supervision. The Danish road directorate is ready. If anyone finds a suspicious item anywhere, it must remain untouched. Suspicious items must be meticulously checked by the police before being handed over to the lost property office. And so, the police officers answer numerous calls from buses, playgrounds, and other places across Copenhagen securing any lost items. In normal time, no such additional efforts would be put into finding the owners of these items. After the explosion on the city bus, the police have started using all available resources to push the investigation forward. The chief of Copenhagen's Homicide Division appoints a special unit, whose only duty is to track down whoever is behind the attacks. To restore peace and calm, Police officers start patrolling the entire capital. The police's criminal investigators and marshals from Copenhagen and Gladsaxe are forbidden from going on vacation. In addition, a twenty thousand krona reward, two thousand four hundred pounds, is set. Today, that would be around eighty thousand krona, or nine thousand six hundred pounds. Who is the bomber? The only thing the police are certain of is that the culprit or culprits are using aliases. The false seven, the invisible X, and the gamma bomber. Nothing else is known. No progress is made in the case because there are simply no leads that could be followed. Meanwhile, the extra-blooded newspaper receives a strange letter containing the following announcement. Extra Bladet asked us for a comment on the 1977 attacks. In this letter, we want to make things clear and explain all ambiguities that have appeared in the press and among the police in relation to the bomb attacks. The terrorist organization called the Sadistic Killers consists of its leader, the False Seven, the Invisible X, responsible for the attacks, and the bomb constructor, the Gamma Bomber. We take full responsibility for the seven explosions planted in northwestern Copenhagen, four of which went off. We announced the attacks will be on hold for two months because of the coming winter. The snow and cold could damage the time fuse batteries. This year, our builder, the Gamma Bomber, is going to draw up some new bombs with manual ignition and time fuses. As mentioned in the letter to Bladder, a long period passes during which there are no attacks. The police still sometimes gets notifications about pipe bombs being found, but each time they turn out to be dummies, left by teenagers. From time to time, one or two of them are caught and severely punished for their actions. Months pass. The public mood begins to calm. The investigation will soon come up empty. The police still have no useful leads, so those in charge decide to disband the special unit and close the case. In April 1978, the press informs the public, but journalists won't give up on the case so easily. Is this really the end? What happened to the bomber? Did he back off? Maybe he's dead. Can he be goaded into reacting and resurfacing again? In April 1978, the newspaper Extra-Blooded seeks an explanation. In the bomber's last letter, he'd mentioned there would be only a two-month break. So why had the bomber been silent for so long? The newspaper asked. Perhaps this provocation had an effect, because later that month, the bomber struck again. It's Tuesday, the 11th of April, 1978, at 7.30am. A woman is vacuuming the hall of the Lingby Shopping Centre where she notices a brown plastic bag between two press stands. She doesn't touch it. She calls her husband, who also works at the shopping centre as a cleaner. The man kicks the bag lightly. It falls over, and something that looks like a pipe bomb rolls out across the floor. It looks very real. So the pair withdraw at once and inform security. The security chief doesn't want to take any risks and immediately calls the police. While waiting for the arrival of the police, the man and his co-workers cordon off the area where the bomb is. The spot where it was planted, just like with previous attacks, was chosen for a reason. The bag that held the bomb was lying at a stand with children's magazines about Donald Duck and Superman. The police arrive and question all the workers, managers, security guards, and shop owners, to no avail. No one had noticed the bomb before now. It's assumed the bomb was left there the previous day. The plastic bag in which it was hidden is a type that's available throughout the shopping center, given to anyone who asks for one. Forensic technicians believe the bomb is more technically advanced than its predecessors. The ignition is the same as the previous bombs, It's a relay that triggers when the voltage drops from 9 volts to 5 volts. The main switch is also the same as the type used before, and it activates the circuit and lights the bomb when it's lifted. But the worst thing is that there is a thin iron wire that attaches the pipe, which is sealed with plugs at both ends, to a 200-gram tin filled with camping gas. If the bomb had detonated... It would have resulted in a fireball two or three meters wide, which would have been extremely dangerous with the potential to kill several children. The explosives unit from Farum arrives at the shopping center as well. They bring their new robot, the Rolling Marie, with them. So far, the robot has only been used once before. An explosive expert uses a remote control device to direct the robot toward the bomb. Then a cartridge is fired... And the bomb is detonated No one is harmed The camping gas canister fails to detonate It's just dented a little Aside from deploying the rolling marie The police also take other precautions They advise their dog handlers to train their animals to detect bombs The dogs, just like those used in drug cases Can smell explosive substances And are able to recognize whether a bomb is real or just a dummy There is no doubt that the bomber has returned. The police use all available means and resources to find the so-called Mad Bomber. The special unit assigned to investigate this series of bombing crimes is re-established, and police officers are brought in from all over to patrol the streets of Copenhagen. Again, the police ask people for help. There is a 30,000 kroner reward set for information that could lead to the arrest of the person or people responsible for the attacks. Soon, the police are notified of over 1,800 possible leads, but none of them yields the expected results. The police start to suspect that someone is protecting the bomber. How else could anyone construct so many bombs without drawing any attention? On Thursday the 13th of April, the headline in the BT tabloid reads, Someone is protecting the mad bomber police claim. The article quotes the Gledzexer police inspector who said the following, There could be someone who knows the identity of the bomber, but they are hesitating to come forward because they have a close relationship with him, and that's why they don't want to report him. Yet still, no new information is brought to light. Finally, the police announce through the press that they guarantee anybody who might know more will avoid punishment. So, if such a person were to turn themselves in to the police, law enforcement will refrain from prosecuting them. Weeks pass, but no one comes forward. Then, on the 1st of May, 1978, the bomber strikes again. It's a sunny spring day, And in a large park in eastern Copenhagen, a crowd has gathered, decked with red flags which are blowing in the breeze. It's May Day, and the Communist Party of Denmark are holding their annual May 1st rally on one of the lawns of the park. It's packed full with people. A 16-year-old boy is taking photos of the crowd and the people speaking on stage. A young man pushes past the teenage boy, stopping about 10 meters away from the stage. He's holding a bag and is about to lean over when a bang goes off and a column of smoke rises into the air. The man is now lying on the ground, screaming, I just lifted the bag, I just lifted it! Blood flows down his hand and legs. An elderly man standing nearby has also been hurt. People rush to help them both. The boy is limping, but after the initial shock passes, he disappears into the crowd. At 2.55 p.m., A radio message goes out to the Copenhagen investigators, who then travel to the scene. A unit of marshals is already there. They immediately cordon off the area, securing what remains of the bomb which lies scattered in the grass while various people inspect the scene. The remains of the bomb are collected, put into a wooden box, and left at the back of the stage. The bag, which has something inside, is picked up by a witness and added to the other already secured parts. Besides criminal investigators, explosive experts and special officers are also called. When the specialists see the bag, they can't immediately rule out there being no second bomb inside. Appropriate precautions are taken, but it turns out the bag only contains a pair of rubber gloves. The police have no way to check who picked up which elements and put them behind the stage, and since it's impossible to tell where each part was picked up, It makes reconstructing events extremely difficult. Luckily, some of the rally participants took pictures with their cameras right after the explosion. The 16-year-old boy's photos are particularly important because he was close to the bomb when it went off. The police are given the camera film and set about developing the photos. They hope the photos will allow them to learn more about this series of events. Several witnesses saw people running away from the spot where the bomb exploded. One of them was holding his hand, which was bleeding heavily. A witness with first aid training ran toward the limping man, grabbing him below the arms, and supported him until another came to help. Together they took the wounded man to the first aid tent, where rescuers were waiting. The injured young man is transported to the emergency department of the nearby Rizhospitala Hospital. Hospital. It so happens that two police officers are already there. They'd heard about the bomb attack in the park, so they'd connected the dots and assumed that the injured man was probably the culprit, the so-called famous bomber. They contact the superiors at their police station, and they, in turn, contact the criminal investigators. The two police officers are supposed to discreetly watch the wounded man and wait for further instruction. Sometime later, the young man is moved to the hand surgery department in another hospital. The criminal police arrive relatively quickly. The same evening, at ten past ten, after the doctors agree, the young man is questioned. He's staying in a single room and is under 24-hour observation. He also learns that he is being detained and can exercise his right to remain silent. The young man says that he's nineteen, and he's a high school student. He lives with his parents in a villa in Helleru on the outskirts of Copenhagen. The boy then learns he's being charged with attempted murder under Article 237 of the Danish Penal Code and with violating Article 183 of the Danish Penal Code which states, if a person causes an explosion by using explosive charges which endangers someone or causes a loss of life, injury or damage to someone else's property... That act is punishable by up to 12 years' imprisonment. At first, the young man is shocked by the charges and is unable to comment, but he eventually admits he was the one who planted the bomb that day in the park. He also states, unprompted, that he's not the false seven. Then he says more about the bomb. He went to the park with four classmates, and they were standing about 50 meters from the stage. At some point, he went towards the stage on his own, planning to place the bomb he'd brought next to the stage or somewhere near it. But he can't explain why the bag with the bomb inside it was put near people who were right next to the stage. The bomb which was in the plastic bag would detonate if the bag was lifted or if the batteries were partly discharged. Then the relay would activate the fuse. But the bomb's construction must have been faulty, because it went off when the boy put his hand into the bag to activate the main switch. But what about the motive? Why did he bring the bomb to the rally? The young man explains that he wanted to express his contempt for communism. The young man is questioned about the previous year's attacks, but he denies knowing anything about them. Meanwhile, the policeman searched the rooms in his parents' house. They informed the boy that a search was carried out and that they'd found something in his room. Items that indicated that he did know about the earlier attacks. The young man is quiet for a few seconds. He glances out the window. Takes a moment to think. Then, he looks up at the police officers and confesses. He admits that he's the bomber, and that he constructed all nine bombs himself. All were made in his room in his parents' villa. He also talks about being one of the three members of a group consisting of the False Seven, their leader, the Invisible X, and himself, the Gamma Bomber. The group was founded in 1977, and he says he joined because over the last five years, he learned a lot about constructing bombs. The group's goal is to terrorize the people of Denmark. He also tells the police that in today's attack... The group was specifically targeting supporters of left wing politics, because the group members themselves are right wing supporters. They had planned to carry out 11 explosions, and the bomber also wanted to explore the relationship between mass media and terrorism, how one impacts the other. After the 11th explosion, he planned to inform the Danish people in an open letter that all future terrorist attacks would be aimed solely. At left wing groups. He claims he got paid for the first three attacks. Then he became a member of the group and constructed the bombs for free. During the interrogation, he also says that he planted the explosives in the bus and in the park himself, while the remaining bombs were placed by other members of the group. But he doesn't want to reveal their identity. If he did, they would try to kill him. The man is informed that he will be taken to court and to jail the man is still receiving care from doctors and the doctors disagree with the decision to detain him so immediately but the trial is the next day and since the accused is absent a warrant for his arrest is issued the man is to be remanded in custody for four weeks the bomber is obliged to appear in court in 24 hours time where he's issued with a certificate confirming his readiness for a trial Let's quickly summarize the events that transpired after the explosion in the park. When the criminal division officers arrive at the emergency ward of the city hospital, they find two young policemen who suspect the injured young man is their culprit. They say they want to see what the wounded man had in his pockets, but the hospital personnel don't allow it, especially since the man didn't want to show what he had on him. The two officers didn't want to make any procedural mistakes and that's why they waited for the arrival of the criminal investigators. When the criminal investigators arrive, they order the injured man's pockets to be checked. Inside they find, among other things, a plug for a pipe 12 millimeters in diameter and diagrams of the bombs which were found earlier. The police officers go to the suspect's house and with his parents' consent, they search his room. They find the evidence they've been intensely looking for Diagrams, weapon drawings, and newspaper cuttings about all the explosions since the 8th of April 1977 They also find pipes, wires, cables, and electronic parts from old radio sets The police also discover tools that leave the same dents and markings as those seen on the pipes in previous bombs As mentioned earlier, the bomber is first brought to court and then put in jail for four weeks With the consent Of his doctors He has moved To the clinic In the Finksel prison In Copenhagen On the 9th of May At 9.30am Investigators question him In the presence Of his defense lawyer His testimony Is very different Compared to his Initial statement Being a member Of a three person group Was a lie Everything was done By him alone He planned out constructed, and then planted all of the bombs. He can describe each bomb attack in detail. He tells investigators that he was inspired to choose the name the Gamma Bomber from a media report in the Politica newspaper, in which he'd learned that the Greek letter Gamma looks like a mirrored number 7. To him, the Gamma Bomber sounded more deadly than the false 7, and so he started using the phrase as his pseudonym. But why did he carry out these bomb attacks? That's the most important question for the police. Is he clinically insane? No, there's nothing to suggest that. On the contrary, he makes a good impression, formulates his thoughts sensibly, and is very polite during questioning. Forensic psychiatry experts confirm that he doesn't have a mental disorder. During the interrogation, the boy reveals a few details. He'd always done well at school and actively participated during lessons, but since childhood, he's been very reserved, and it's been difficult for him to voice his opinions clearly. Expressing himself both in spoken and written form has been a difficulty as well. When he was a student at primary school in Merkheim, some of the other students bullied him. The bullying only stopped when he went to high school in Gledsaxe. He's in his 12th year at school, and chose biology and mathematics as his main subjects. At high school, he's regarded as an outsider, who finds it difficult to participate in the school community. Many classmates describe him as an immature person living in his own world. He spends more time with girls than boys. While some girls described him as sweet and kind, others considered him rather weird. The young man can't explain why he started planting bombs across Copenhagen. He says he was initially inspired by the explosion at the railway station in Belarus. He also confesses that before the bomb attack, during the summer of 1977, he was going through a kind of existential crisis and felt depressed. It was probably connected to the fact that his girlfriend had left him. The bomb attack seemed to allay his depressive mood. He also implies that his existential crisis led to feelings of contempt and he just wanted to cause damage and make it appear like the work of a terrorist group. He also mentions a split personality. Sometimes he feels like his old self and doesn't want to construct bombs anymore. But then there are phases when he isn't himself. He's an evil alter ego, which makes him want to make bombs and cause explosions. And then he changes his mind and says that the description should only be treated as a metaphor and that in reality, he's not two different people. The truth of the matter remains unclear. While searching his room, the police also find detailed notes about all his aliases. The false seven, the invisible X, and the gamma bomber. He writes how each of them made purchases for the bombs they made, as if they were real people. So maybe it's true. He lived in a world of fantasy where he played different roles. It might not be a split personality as such, but still some kind of personality disorder. The young man also claims that the media are to blame for the crimes and that many times he was pressured into detonating the explosive charges. That statement isn't as exaggerated as it may seem. While searching his room, the police found various drafts of his letters addressed to the public. In the letters, the boy declared that he was going to stop the bomb attacks. One of the letters states... To Danish society, the FDFK organization, Denmark Free From Communists, hereby declares that from this day on, the bomb attacks carried out by the False Seven and related organizations will cease. We talked to the False Seven about those nonsensical attacks and we decided that it's important to know when to leave the stage. It was that special relationship between the press and the bomber that made him famous and, indirectly, caused his downfall. In many cases, it was the media that inspired him, and it was their thorough and detailed accounts that made his crimes seem more unusual. At the same time, the bomber was addicted to the press reports, and so he continued to carry out his attacks. It was this fixation with the press reports that made him return to his bombing spree after the long pause in attacks between 1977 and 1978, a return that led to the reopening of the case, which finally led to his arrest. The bomber never really offered a clear explanation about his motives, so the real reason for his actions remains unknown. What's also startling is that no one in his life had noticed what he was doing. His parents said they didn't know their son was making bombs in his room. No one from his family or friends knew or suspected anything. Sentencing takes place on the 16th of March, 1979. The proceedings are short. The Copenhagen County Court makes its verdict in a matter of days. The bomber is sentenced to five years in prison. But in September 1981, he's released from prison conditionally and under the supervision of a probation officer. After he is released, he takes up further studies and becomes a chemical engineer. He also marries and has two children. At the age of just 38, he passes away from acute decompensated heart failure. The series of nine pipe bomb attacks, which took place in unusual and at times chilling locations, held the Danish people in the grip of fear for two years they are still remembered as some of the most sensational crimes to have taken place in Denmark. From Podimo, this is Cold Blood, Nordic True Crime. A new episode every week, wherever you get your podcasts. And for early access to episodes and to listen ad-free, subscribe to Podimo UK on Apple Podcasts.